In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. The last public act, oh, please sit down. <laughs> uh, the, the last public act of David's life uh, is recorded at the end of First Chronicles. And you have to remember the full sweep of David's career. Um, he started out as a shepherd, Goliath killer, war leader under Saul, greatest psalmist in Israel's history. Think the 23rd Psalm, the 24th Psalm, and about 50 others. And finally, for 40 years, king of Israel. And at the very end of his long life and his storied career, his final public act was the blessing of the offering to build the temple. David was not allowed to build the temple, and that would go to his son Solomon. But he was allowed to gather the offering that would be used to build that temple. And here's a portion of his prayer as he blesses that offering. Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you will reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people? that we should be able to offer so willingly as this. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now, with joy, I have seen your people who were present here to offer willingly to you. That's the David of the 23rd Psalm, but it's, it's also a, a prayer of passionate longing for God and joy in making his, an offering. And so often in the modern church, those are not the passions and emotions that we associate with stewardship or with giving money. So David offers us a perfect opportunity to begin to think about stewardship as a remaking of, of the act of stewardship and the act of offering into a prayer and a passionate longing to be properly related to God. And David can help us there. And as we begin our stewardship season, let's begin it the way David prayed with passion, joy, and longing to be with God as we offer. Now, when we turn to the New Testament and we look for guidance about how to live our lives with money, the most common thing that we encounter are warnings. They're sprinkled all through there. Um, in, uh, in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, don't lay up your treasures on earth, lay up your treasures in heaven, for where your treasures are, your heart will be also. Warning. In uh, Luke 12, in the parable of the rich fool, uh, a man so rich, he's sitting around, uh, his only thought is about how to build bigger barns to hold all his stuff on the very night that his soul is required of him. Warning. There are lots of them, you know, and if we, if we go around, we'll come up with them too. 
And obviously these warnings are important or there wouldn't be so many of them in there. Um, and they receive a lot of attention in preaching and teaching. But when you look at the other side of the coin and you try and figure out, okay, I understand that I'm not supposed to worship my money. I understand that the idolatry of possessions is a bad thing. But what then am I supposed to do? When you look for positive examples, they are there, but they're often hidden in plain sight. Uh, And they get a lot less attention in our general thought about how to live our lives with money. Now, a terrific example of hidden in plain sight, direct help in how we should live our lives with money is the ending of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the part where money changes hands between the Samaritan and the innkeeper. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan, like the, one of the most familiar, let me just anchor it for you. It's a second in a two-part exchange with a certain lawyer. <laughs> the first question the certain lawyer asks is, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And the answer, as Jesus forces him to replay it, is the summary of the law. Uh, In our liturgy, we use Matthew's version of the summary of the law. Uh, But in Luke, it's virtually the same thing. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then comes the punchline, and your neighbor as yourself. Which triggers the second question, but who is my neighbor? Now, so the parable of the Good Samaritan is a response to that. And the lawyer is hoping to limit his responsibility for his neighbor. And naturally, Jesus does the exact opposite and dramatically expands the definition of neighbor to virtually everyone, including those that we were culturally at war with. So so then to add punch to it and bite, the role reversal between the Samaritan who loves his neighbor properly and the priest whose life is devoted to God who does not and I have to wonder how many priests were in the crowd when, uh, when Jesus is disputing with the lawyer. So, first of all, you have this enormous expansion of the definition of neighbor so that it includes everybody. And second, you have a complete role reversal as the people that should love properly do not. And the person that you expect to make a mistake is the example that we're given. But it does not require money to make this point. Uh, The ending of the parable, the question that Jesus asks at the end of the lawyer is, now which of these three showed mercy to the man who fell among thieves? Supposing I omit the encounter with the innkeeper, then the parable would sound like this. Uh, and, And he crossed over, found the man half dead, bound up his wounds, put him on his horse, took him to the inn, and said, innkeeper, I found this man half dead on the road. I have done the best I can for him, and I leave him in your hands. And off he goes. What would the lawyer's answer have been at the end of the parable? It would have been the same. Now, which of these three showed mercy? Uh, he, uh, which of these was the neighbor to, to the three? Uh, which of the three was the neighbor to the man that fell among thieves? He who showed mercy. The priest didn't stop. The Levite didn't stop. The Samaritan did a nice job, got him to the inn, and headed off into the sunset. So it doesn't take money to make the point that Jesus is making here of dramatically expanding the scope of who is our neighbor. So if that's not necessary for that purpose, why is it there? Because there are two points in this parable. The first one is the dramatic expansion, everyone is your neighbor. But the second one is a 
tangible, direct demonstration of what Christian love to a neighbor actually looks like. And that direct demonstration does involve money. And that's the second point that Jesus is trying to teach us here. Uh, And for stewardship, we couldn't have a better example. So if that's the case, let's look a little bit more closely. It's verse 35 at exactly what the Samaritan does. Verse 35. On the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. Jesus is not just trying to teach us who our neighbor is, but what our responsibility to that neighbor actually includes. Now let's start with two denarii, a little or a lot. Uh, in, in my New King James, the cost of a lodging in an inn is one-twelfth of a denarius a day. So what we have here is a Samaritan, 24 days prepaying the care of a Jew who would have crossed the street to avoid him had he been healthy. Two denarii is not a small sum. Okay? It is more than he undoubtedly wanted to do. All right? Secondly, we don't want to read too quickly over the back half of this verse uh, because the back half is take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you. Oh, really? Let me give you a third ending of this parable. It's uh, six weeks later, and the Samaritan rides back up to the inn. The innkeeper runs out and says, Sir, sir, I'm so glad that you've come back to honor your pledge. Your money ran out three weeks ago. And for the first two weeks, the, the injured man was so delirious, I had to hire special help to take care of him. And his screams were so loud, he drove away everybody in my inn. All my regulars wouldn't come. His care has cost me six denarii, and you owe me six denarii. Fanciful? Maybe. But it is absolutely implicit in the open-ended promise that the Samaritan makes to the innkeeper. So what do we have here in terms of the definition of actual tangible love for neighbor? You give a lot, you give more than you want to, and you give more when it's necessary. And, if, and there couldn't be a better illustration of what Christian stewardship is supposed to be like. So there's a lot more in this parable than just an ethereal expansion of we should love everybody in the whole world. The punchline is, is, we, we should, is the way in which we need to love the individual includes our efforts, bandaging his wounds, our things, put him on his horse, and our money to tangibly try and fix what is wrong in our neighbor's life. Now, those of us of a certain age will remember a commercial uh, for Wendy's. The old lady careening around saying, where's the beef? See? See? You got some. (laughs) And and her, her point was, of course, that there's more beef in the burger at Wendy's. But if you're looking for where's the beef in in Christian love. This is a double Angus burger sitting here in the Good Samaritan. And that's our second theme that that we should keep in mind. The Samaritan is showing us how to pledge. You pledge a lot, you pledge more than you want to, and you increase it. Okay, and that's the second theme that we should take with us. 
So first we have, we, we should be looking at money in relation to God with joy, with a passionate longing to integrate our offering into our life with God. And secondly, the Samaritan is showing us just how to go about it in practice. A lot, more than you want to, and increase it. Now in a few minutes, uh, Father Michael will pray the Eucharistic prayer for us as we prepare to receive the body and blood and communion. And the word sacrifice occurs in that prayer four times. Two in relation to Jesus and two in relation to us. The key one in relation to Jesus is this. Uh, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. The key one in relation to us is near the end. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Now we know exactly what Jesus' sacrifice was, and its symbol is the cross. The question is, is what's ours? We pray that prayer every week. Now, money is not the only way to sacrifice. If you look around any time you're in this church, we have a bunch of magnificent Christians who give sacrificially of their time way over and above anything that one would expect. And that is certainly part of the response to this prayer. But ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a whole and living sacrifice, if that doesn't include our life with money, it's sort of an empty statement. We spend most of our lives working for money. So when we then come to church and say we present ourselves as a sacrifice, and it doesn't include our wallets, and it doesn't include it in a way that the Samaritan would be proud of, it sort of makes a mockery of the prayer. And that's the third theme I'd like to suggest. Passion and joy and offering Give like the Samaritan and live out what we pray every week in the Eucharistic prayer. To be a holy sacrifice in all dimensions of our life to God. Now those are the themes. Uh, those are the themes. And we have two practical challenges. Practically, we should go for two goals. The first one is 100% pledging. We got 85% last year. That was up from the year before, and we should be proud of that. This year it should be 100%, because everybody can pledge. Every pledge matters. Every pledge is just like every person in the pews. It builds up the community, it builds us all up, it builds up your treasurer, it builds up your priest. Every pledge matters, and this year is 100%. The second goal is that we, we need to pledge a lot more. You know, as we discern now uh, how we're going to find and buy a new church, we have to demonstrate that we deserve it financially. Last year, we, we got our pledges up, but we flatlined the amount. Okay, and this year, we should go for three things. 100% pledging, increase the amount that we're pledging, and most pledges should increase. We need to keep score of that and evaluate it. So when, when we, as we, our stewardship campaign begins today. Let it begin, first of all, with the heart of David's prayer. But who am I and who are my people to offer willingly? All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have I given you. Let's begin with that. When you start to make out your pledge, think about the Samaritan over your shoulder. 
and think about whether what you're doing lives out the, the implications of Jesus' direction as to how we are supposed to live our lives with money. That's not the only place it's in the gospel, but it's a beautiful one. And thirdly, before you turn in your pledge, uh, ask yourself whether you have validated what we say in the Eucharistic prayer or it's just sort of a shadow. So pray like David, give like the Samaritan, and live out the sacrifice that we pray in the Eucharistic prayer. And if we do that, I think we'll be fine. Amen.